Hi everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today we have Rowan Gormley from Naked Wines. Rowan, how are you doing today? Great. Very well, thanks. How about yourself? Doing great. Thanks for joining us. So, you know, why don't you tell us, uh, you know, give us a little bit about your background and then, uh, you know, how, you know, Naked Wines came about. Sure. Uh, my background is uh, I came from private equity and I met a guy called Richard Branson and uh, through him landed up becoming an on- entrepreneur. So we set up Virgin Money together and then we set up the Virgin One account, which is a bank, and then Virgin Wines and then Naked Wines. So this is my fourth startup. Nice. Okay. So you kind of just stumbled into the, the, this whole entrepreneurship game, right? Yeah, I think I probably always had it in me. So when I met Richard, uh, he wanted me to join them to do corporate development, you know, to, to do deals for Virgin. And literally the first day we I was there, we had lunch, and uh, we were talking about, so where should the Virgin brand go? And uh, everyone was talking about spaceships and, you know, boutique hotels and nightclubs. And I said, what about financial services? <laughs> and everyone was like, what? Virgin financial services? Crazy. But, um, you know, my logic was, and Richard said, well, why do you think that? And I said, because no one trusts banks. And this was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're going to trust them even less in the future. And everyone trusts Virgin. So the Virgin brand is going to be most valuable where people, you know, where people don't trust the incumbents. So why don't we do financial services? And he went, great. So I said, so shall I do some research? He went, no, let's just, let's just do it. <laughs> wow. was- okay, great. So, you know, how did you, I, I guess we'll backtrack a little bit. I mean, how do you go from private equity to meeting someone like Richard Branson and then end up working with him? I mean, how, how, what's that story? Well, we worked in a deal with the Virgin guys, and um, the, the deal itself never actually happened. But Richard was involved, and he, I just got a phone call one day, and uh, he's, uh, he's got quite a, a sort of quiet, shy voice. So there's this quiet, shy person on the other end of the phone going, oh, hello, it's Richard here. So I said, Richard who? Branson. So I went, yeah, fuck off, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so he said, no, no, it really is. Um, do you want to come and work here? <laughs> so I said, okay. So I went trying to go and see him and we kind of stared at each other. And I expected to get all these heavy interview questions. And he just stared at me and I said, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, what can you do? <laughs> I, said, I can do deals. <laughs> I can fix broken companies. They went, great, come and do that. That's, that's great. Perfect. And that's how I landed up, working there. Wow, okay. So he just knew you were the right guy. I think it's more than one of those gut feeling calls, huh? He does that a lot. You know, I was uh, just lucky to be one of the guys that he thought give this guy a shot. See okay. what he can do. Great. So I know I know um, you know, reading the Wikipedia it might be a little inaccurate, but um, you know I know the first wine company was called Orgasmic Wines, right? And so, you know, Orgasmic Wines, you know, naked wines, I mean how how does this naming come about? Well, working at Virgin, I learned the benefit of having uh, an impactful name. And so uh, originally I went to the Virgin guys and said, look, I think we should, the internet's about to happen. I think wine's going to be one of the areas. Um, 
why don't we do it? And, and originally they declined, so we called it Orgasmic. And then once they saw it working, they bought back in and we changed the name to Virgin. And I've stuck with the theme. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Cool. So let's. I guess let's talk about you know let's talk about naked wines. I mean you know. Uh, I know you took you know fifteen virgin wine wine employees from from there, and I mean you know how how did you um, I mean how many customers do you guys have right now? You know how are revenues looking? You know things like that. Okay, um, so we're five years old. Our, uh, the customers we really care about are what we call angels, who are customers who support growth fund our wine, crowd fund our winemakers, and we've got two hundred thousand of those in across the US, the UK, and Australia. Last year, they gave us revenues of around $85 million. Wow. And this year, we should be somewhere north of $100 million. Okay. And then all in the span of five years, huh? Yep. Cool. Great. So how did you, you know, I always like to ask uh, the people that I interview, how, how did you go about acquiring your first, you know, let's just say your first thousand customers? Uh, what we did was um, we literally put an ad in on Google AdWords and said we're looking for people to be wine tasters, unpaid wine tasters, and we'll send you six bottles of wine for free. All we ask is that you review them and tell us what you think. And we had about 500 people put their names down. So it cost us 500 cases of wine. And about 300 of those people are still customers today. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And that just uh, that just got the ball rolling. Wow. Okay. Crazy. So I'm I'm assuming your 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 customer retention rate. I mean, it must be like through the roof. I mean, are you doing anything else to to retain these customers? You got the got. I mean, you know, I heard customer focus. You know, you come from a virgin background. There's got to be some secret sauce, right? Yeah. Look, the, the whole business model is is based on doing exactly the opposite of what the rest of the wine industry does. So, right now, especially in the U.S. The wine industry is pretty broken. So the two important people are the winemaker and the wine drinker. They're both getting screwed. The guys in the middle are making all the money. And so when we set up Naked Wines, we said we can't just be another online wine retailer competing with the same brands at the same prices. You know, we have to do something that's completely radical. And to do that, uh, we had to do exactly the opposite of what the industry is doing. So instead of screwing our suppliers by beating them up on price the whole time, and never paying them when we're supposed to. We actually finance them. Uh, instead of um, trying to screw our suppliers by telling them that this bottle of Napa Cab is worth $100 because Robert Parker gave it 95 points, we let them get wholesale prices in exchange for funding our winemakers. So what we try to do is build this virtuous circle where our customers crowdfund our winemakers. That means the winemakers don't need to waste their time and money selling to the customers which means they can give the customers stunning wines at wholesale prices, which are anywhere 40 to 60% below normal retail prices. And the reason the wine industry has made this easy for us to do is if you go and buy a $100 bottle of Napa Cab, there's only about 10 bucks a Napa Cab in that bottle. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you've got to pay for the bottle and the cork, sure, but there's an awful lot of sales and marketing and distribution and all stuff you can't taste. Whereas for us, if we spend 10 bucks to make a bottle of wine, we'll sell it for 20. Customers getting a $100 bottle for 20 bucks, that, that's what makes them loyal. That's why they stick around. You simply can't get these wines at these prices anywhere else. Got it. Okay. So would it be fair to call this a uh, Kickstarter for wine? 
And yeah, yeah. Uh, people keep going, is it like Kickstarter for wine? Is it like Netflix for wine? Is it like Etsy? And it's a bit like all of those things. But yeah, it, it, it's got the crowdfunding aspect of Kickstarter. It's got the um, artisanal aspect, I suppose, of Etsy. And then, in a sense, we're a bit, I don't know who this would be like, but we don't just connect the winemaker and the wine drinker. We are almost like a publisher for winemakers in the sense that we fund them, we design the labels, we do the sales, marketing, distribution, we provide a facility here in Sonoma for them to actually come and make their wines. We do all the regulation, we handle all the funding, the collections, everything. So all the winemaker needs to do is make great wine. Now, if you think about the book industry, publishers don't expect authors to know how to buy books or print books or anything. All you've got to do is write. That's what we're trying to create for winemakers. Got it. Okay, cool. And it seems like, you know, NakedWines.com, you guys have a super strong community. I mean, is there anything special you guys did to kind of kickstart? I, I just use Kickstarter, right? Kickstart that community? Uh, to be honest, a lot of it just happened completely naturally and took us by surprise. But the first decision we made was that, uh, and this was five years ago, so you know, Facebook was well established by then. But the first decision we made was, how would our customers know the difference between us and every other wine supplier out there saying, oh, this is some tiny little artisanal winemaker you know, making three barrels in his garage? Uh, and the answer is we had to connect them. We had to let the customer speak to the winemakers so they could see these are real people. And they could understand how much of a difference by investing, by crowdfunding, and they're making to this person's life. And we need to let the customers speak to each other. So it was kind of, it was something we just didn't think terribly hard about at the beginning. We said we wanted to be naked. We wanted to be completely transparent. What you see is what you get. And the best way to do that is just no secrets. Just let everyone talk to, to one another. And it was a kind of simple, easy decision. But that's what's driven all the social engagement and this very strong sense of community. And I think, you know, the huge difference is buying a bottle of wine from us uh, and buying a bottle of wine from some high-end wine merchant, aside from the price difference. The, the huge difference is you become friends with the winemaker. You know, and it's really cool drinking something made by a friend of yours. And it's really cool sharing that with other friends. And that's it's a different experience. Totally. I'm, I'm going to go buy some wine after this from your site. I didn't even know that the savings were that big. But, um, you know, it, I, I think when you when you start something out like this, I mean, you, you know, you're building out a community. We can call it a marketplace, right? You have to get, first of all, the users or the customers coming in, and then you have to worry about the winemakers, too. So how did you go about getting all these, you know, great winemakers? Uh, we, we went out and raised some funding to start with mm -hmm. because we had to go to the winemakers before we had any customers and go, Here's some money, please make some wine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we had to go to the customers and say, uh, please give us some money, and I promise you there's going to be some wine soon. <laughs> and we basically just had to try and get both sides to take it on faith that sooner or later the winemakers would make the wine and there'd be customers to drink it. Unfortunately, people did, and the results were good. And you know, then it, you just get a flywheel effect. It just happens after that. Got it. Okay. But, uh, there were some early, some nervous days in the beginning. <laughs> so when you're going, I mean, how long did those nervous days last? I mean, till you first started, you know, really rolling? A good nine months. Okay. You know, literally the first day we sat there and turned on the switches and we had some, we didn't, we had peanuts for advertising. So we, we spent our few peanuts on 
you know, what little advertising we could do. And we kind of sat there and just watched the site. And by about 11 o'clock, it went, bing. Oh, we got an order. And they go, oh, it's your granny. (laughs) Nice. It was like 3 o'clock that afternoon before the first actual person came along and ordered some wine. And we just went crazy. And we just sent it to them. We didn't even take the money. We were so excited. It's like when Amazon first started and they sold the first book or whatever and they rang the bell, right? That's right, yeah. Got it. Cool. So let's talk about, you know, your, I know you come, you know, you started with accounting and you went to private equity. So the finance background, obviously, I mean, how has that helped you with your, your, you know, all the businesses that you, you've run? Well, I think the, the kind of key thing in each of the businesses that I've been involved with, the kind of core belief is there's so many things you buy today where very little of the money is actually for the thing you buy. You know, so if you go and buy a book, right, Amazon's brought down the price of books. Hallelujah. So a book now costs 10 bucks. What does the author get? The author's still getting like 40 cents, 50 cents, mm-hmm. you know? So I've always tried to come at things from saying, well, what does the thing actually cost? And then if you can find a way of getting it to the customer, adding as little cost as possible along the way, then you don't need to have a big fancy pan sales and marketing campaign. Whereas... What a lot of other people seem to do is they go, right, this costs X. I'm going to spend 3X selling it. Now I need to charge 5X. And all of a sudden, a product goes from being affordable to being expensive. And the money's just been spent on stuff that doesn't actually add to the experience. So, uh, you know, in financial services, the whole idea was most financial service companies are in trouble because they've got to pay their salesmen so much to sell their product, which means the product's expensive, which means nobody in their right mind would buy it, which means the only way to sell it is to employ a salesman. You know, so they're stuck in this vicious circle. So I've always tried to come at it the other way around. And I think that comes from a, a financial background. And just if you can uh, get as much of the customer's money as possible going into grapes, oak, talent, time, and as little as possible going into banner advertising campaigns, it's a right better in a business, in, in my view. Got it. Okay. And it's worked out for you, obviously. Uh, <laughs> cool. So, you know, in terms of, uh, I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs want to improve in, in terms of, you know, getting their, let's just say their finance chops in order. I mean, how, how would you recommend someone, you know, do, go about that nowadays? Um, what certainly worked for us is, uh, although I have a financial background, when I launched Virgin Wines, it was the height of the dot-com boom. We raised a mountain of money, uh, you know, big ad campaign, fancy head office, lots of staff, Accenture built all the IT, you know, no expense paid on anything. And in no time at all, I realized, oh, my God, this has been a terrible mistake. <laughs> you know, we spent all this money. No one's buying anything. This is a disaster. So we have to scale it right back again. And the big learning experience for me was that despite the fact I have a financial background, I actually learned more about our business when I couldn't afford the finance team and I couldn't afford a data analyst and I just had to do it myself. So I think the advice for any entrepreneur would be, you know, make yourself into a whiz on Excel. (laughs) Teach yourself SQL. And with those two basic tools, get in, do your own data analysis. Don't give the job to somebody else. And that's the best way to really understand your business. And at the beginning... You know, we we don't need to do this anymore, but at the beginning what we would do is I'd download every single data field on every single order, every single month. And I'd go through the 
every single one of them and I'd say, you know, if this customer hasn't bought this month, why? If this product didn't make us the money we needed to make, why? If this product isn't selling at the speed at which it should be selling, why? And it is that kind of absolute granular analysis that you have to do. It's hard grind, you know. I look around the valley now and I keep meeting highly intelligent young guys who've raised 20 million from somebody to do something. And they're all, they've got very big ideas about, oh, we're not really worried about monetization. And, you know, and I think, Sunshine, you're going to be. <laughs> because at some point the music stops, there aren't enough chairs to go around. And if you don't have one stuck to your butt already, you're going to be standing and looking awkward when everyone else has got a seat. Got it. Got it. And I think I've learned that through painful experience, you know. Got it. So do you, I mean, obviously, you know, you're still looking at the numbers yourself. You're saying it's a hard grind. I mean, you know, what kind of, um, you know, help do you have with you on the, on the finance side? Do you have like a CFO? Like what, what types of critical hires do you have with you? I do not. No, CFO is absolutely critical hire. My IT guy, we've been together for four companies. So uh, he's fantastic. Um, the guy who runs our UK business, I hired him at the age of, I think he was 26. And by 28, he was running the company. And he's been fantastic. We've got this brilliant wine guy here. Um, the U.S. and Australia, the guys running the U.S. and Australian businesses, I mean, they're just, they're first-rate people. And I've just had a very strong philosophy of it's so hard hiring the right people and you make mistakes all the time. And the worst thing you can do is you've got to give people a shot, but if they haven't worked out, you just need to start again. Keep going, keep finding the right person. Okay. I guess building on that point, I mean, you know, what's one, you know, hiring tip you can share with the audience? I'm very bad at hiring, to be honest. So I'm not sure I take my own advice. Um, The biggest mistake I've tended to make in the past is hire people like me because I like them. (laughs) And very often uh, what's actually needed in the company is people who are complementary to me, people who are strong where I'm weak and vice versa. And so the, um, I think it's, it's really important to separate out what is the culture of the company, that p- every person in the company needs to have those, and what is the character of the individual, and how do those two things fit together. And for a long time, I confused company culture with people I liked. And uh, I'm not saying that I don't like the stuff we've got now, but I think I've become much better at kind of getting over my first impression and really trying to understand what this person is going to be like to work with. I suppose if there's one technique I've I've tried to come up with, it is you can interview people if you're blue in the face and you really get none the wiser. Mm -hmm. The best way to really find out if they're going to be great is to work with them. So I always come up with some kind of a a real-life problem we're working on in that area and say to them, look, I'll pay you five grand to do this work. So I'm not trying to get your time for free, but I'd like you to pick up this problem. Let's work on it together and see what it's actually like to work together. And that just separates the talkers from the doers. Mm-hmm. Cool. And that five grand, I mean, it's, I guess I'm getting a little too specific here, but out of curiosity, is that like a one week trial, or one month trial typically? Uh, yep. Somewhere between the two. Okay. You know, and it's, it's kind of the way I feel about it is, it's a drop in the ocean compared to the cost of a bad hire. Yep. And if the person is absolutely the right hire, 
and you know that for sure, then it helps you be absolutely confident when you're recruiting them that you don't miss out on a good person. Got it. Okay, cool. So in terms of, uh, for, for Naked Wines, I mean, you know, what are, what are some struggles you face growing the business? I mean, it's been five years. Um, I think credibility is our biggest thing. I think when we first arrived in the U.S., for example, I discovered that uh, I had no network in America. And, you know, I came over from the U.K. two years ago. I'm used to in the U.K., if I want to speak to a potential marketing partner, either I will know someone there or within one or two degrees I will know someone there. So I really underestimated just how much the absence of a network is difficult to replenish. Um, and then when we phone people up, they go, naked wives? No, never heard of you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was very difficult just to get those first few partners in. So we recruit most of our customers by working with partners. And those partners, you know, might be a magazine that wants to incentivize people to subscribe for the magazine. And they will use our wine as an incentive for those people. And we give them a great deal on the wine. Uh, they get an uplift in subscriptions, and some of those people then become customers for us. So that's how we recruit our customers. And, uh, you know, the hard thing is just getting through to people and getting them to take your call and take you seriously. Got it. Okay. And do you, I know, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, try to avoid sales teams, marketing teams in general. Do you guys have a sales and marketing team right now to help grow? Yeah. So, uh, but curiously, we have a sales team that are paid not to sell. So, we don't have a sales team that are paid to get on the phone and call our customers and get an order for some wine out of them. What they're paid to do is to look after a group of customers. And if you see someone's got a problem, call them up and deal with the problem before it becomes a, a real problem. So say, for example, you know, the customer had a delivery and it went wrong. It got delayed by a couple of days. And then they came back on the site and they reviewed five of the wines very badly. They had a bad delivery, bad service, bad wine experience. One of our guys will phone them up and say, Eric, I'm sorry to see the delivery went wrong. I've refunded you for that. I see you didn't like these five wines. I've refunded you for those. Now, let's get you set up so you never get a bottle of wine from us again you don't love. And, uh, you know, on our site, we've got the ability to set your preferences. So any wines you won't like, they've just got a big red cross next to them. So don't buy this wine. You won't like it. <laughs> And so I think they are a sales team. You know, they're measured by their ability to get on the phone, make the calls, make things happen. But they're not measured by their ability to sell. They're measured by their ability to improve the customer's experience. Got it. So this is exactly like uh, you know, like a customer a customer success team, right? Where they're it almost helps with, with retention at the end of the day, right? Exactly. Cool, perfect. I know, um, you know, one of the interviews I did with the Echo Echo Sign founder, uh, Jason Lemkin, is exactly what you guys are doing right now. So I, I think that's it's funny how everything aligns like that. So yeah, I, I agree. Super important role. Um, cool. So question for you though. I mean, you know, I, I talked about retention there, but what metrics do you use to to measure? Uh, you know, kind of these guys. Uh, we obviously track every cohort from launch, mm -hmm. and to see how many of them stick with us, how often they're buying. But the single most important thing is, are they interacting? Are they rating wines? Are they chatting to the winemakers? This kind of thing. Because as soon as our customers get into that routine where, uh, you know, you get 12 wines, you come back, you say, I didn't like these three. I really love these three. 
we've got a really high degree of certainty the next case you buy, you're going to get 12 wines that blow your socks off. And once you've done that, we know, and we know this happens, you know, customers will say to us, oh, I went into you know, my local supermarket the other day and they had a special offer on something, so I took a few bottles and got it home. Oh, you know, what a, what a waste of money. Even at half price, it wasn't worth the money. So as long as we know our customers are interacting, that's the best sign of health in the base that we can have. Got it. Got it. Okay. So it's about creating that wow experience. Um, now, if you could go back and, and, and change one thing, I mean, what would it be? I think probably I would have been more careful with hiring when I set up the team in the U.S. Uh, and I just would have taken things slower. Okay. And uh, I think when I came into the U.S., uh, you know, although I've been to America a lot before, it, it just kind of blows your mind how enormous this market is. And so I thought, oh, my God, you know, we need to get uh, – we, we need to build this team really fast. And actually – I should have just done it a bit slower. Be more careful with the hiring. I read somewhere, someone said, you are the people you hire in your first 90 days. And um, and I think probably I should have taken it a little bit slower and just got the people right. And it's taken me, you know, a good 12 months to do it, but we've got the right team in place now. Cool, got it. And in terms of in terms of one productivity hack you can share with the audience, what's what, what's one thing what's one thing that really tops your list? Uh, I mean, for me, this is kind of a personal quirky thing, but learning to do learning learning SQL and just learning to do my own data analysis. Instead of trying to think of a question, get, explain it to a data analyst, mm-hmm. wait 48 hours for a report to come up full of beautiful colors, uh, look at it and go, oh, you know, now here's my next question. Uh, you know, put that back in. So we've got a, a bunch of tools we use, mm-hmm. uh, but having everybody in the company, having those tools on the desk, we do have a data analyst, but their job is to help people learn to use the tool, not to do the analysis for them. And uh, so I think the best productivity hack is actually doing some of your own shit. Okay, cool. And, and you know, learning, learning uh, SQL, I mean, you know, on, on a scale of one to 10, how impactful do you think that's been on, you know, overall for business for you? I'd, I'd say it's a good six or seven. And the reason is that it's given me it's given me the ability to get an insight into the business. It sounds like a small thing, right? Mm-hmm. But it's given me the ability to get an insight into the business at a detailed level that a lot of other CEOs I come across just don't have. You know, they're used to looking at a consolidated report that's passed through three or four people's hands and it's been mm-hmm. sanitized and, and it kind of shows them what they want to see. <laughs> and um, I think by not just for me personally, but for everyone in the business, to have the, the ability to really drill down into exactly the, the base, the raw numbers, to find out what's going on in your area. It's incredibly powerful. Our whole business is built on test and learn. We test everything. We've got a really strong philosophy of, you know, six guys sitting around in a meeting room debating isn't going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. You've got six different point of views, build six, put them live, see what happens. Um, 
and that's that served us really well. But you have to have if you're going to have that kind of shoot from the hip uh, mentality, that's got to be combined with really strong data discipline. So the two together are powerful. Yeah, and I, I think it's super empowerful, empowering when you can, like you said, you don't have to wait to to collect, you know, or wait for your next question, right? And you can just get it on your own. I, I think it's, uh, I think it's something I might action right after this, actually. So, um, final question from from our end. I mean, you know, what's what's one uh, must read book for entrepreneurs? I think um, "Built to Last" by uh, Jim Collins and Jerry Porras is a fantastic book, and it. it it tracks up, I think, 30 companies and their competitors and really tries to understand why some companies make it and some companies don't. And I think there's some really valuable lessons I got out of that, which I try and implement all of the time. And um, it's, it's an old book now. It's probably 20 years old, but fantastic read and will be instructive forever. Cool. And that's the follow-up to uh, good, good to great, right? I think it was the other way around. I think oh. built to last, and then good to great. And okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Cool. So, Rowan, you know, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, been very, very helpful, very insightful stuff. I think it's always great to talk to someone that started in finance and became an entrepreneur. So, thanks. Thanks very much for great questions. Nice yeah. to talk to you. Cheers, Eric. All right. Cool. Um, Question for you: Are you? Um, well, I'm going to email you after to get your address, send you a free uh, T-shirt, and then um, would you be open to some kind of coupon, free wine, or whatever for the audience? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, I'll do that as well. Um, by the way, if you guys are doing any marketing stuff, um, we've been uh, just a tip for you: we've been killing it at YouTube ads for for our clients. So you know, that something might you can just pass that to your marketing team. Um, super okay. cheap and super scalable. So I think this would kill it on YouTube. Nice idea. Perfect. Great. So, uh, yeah, let me know if I can help with anything else. You know, would love to have you on the show some other time. Fantastic. And if you ever come up Napa, Sonoma way, come and see us. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I'm actually in SF like every month or so. So I will let you know. From the wine country. Take care. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers, Eric.